you know, this is uh, Passion Week. This is the week um, leading up to Easter. And uh, so tonight, I, I want us to go to the cross. I want us to think about um, what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We're going to observe communion here in a little bit. And um, so uh, I hope that tonight we can really reflect. Um, you know, each of us have been touched by what Jesus Christ did on Calvary, on the cross. And I think it's good for us to be reminded of what Jesus did on Calvary. And so we're going to begin just by reading. I've, I've pieced together uh, different passages uh, from the Gospels, of course. I tried to take from Mark, Luke, and John and piece the story together using the different verses and try to get it chronological. And I, did, I didn't grab every single detail but I think we have it together here enough to where we're going to be able to, to look upon the scene of Calvary together. So beginning in John chapter 19. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified then they took Jesus away. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. And they dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. And getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. And after that, after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to be crucified. And two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. And carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. They, there they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. And Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross, and it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the others read this sign, because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers crucified Jesus. They took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in uh, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. 
but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him taunted him. And then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And when it was noon, Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Because the sun's light failed, the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. And after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sou- uh, full of sour wine was sitting there, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. He gave up his spirit. So tonight, I want to give you three thoughts about the crucifixion. First of all, the agony of the cross. Secondly, the atrocity of the cross. And then the accomplishment of the cross. Mike, are we recording? Okay, good. All right. We, we had technical issues going on before church, and I wanted to make sure we checked all the boxes. So let's, let's look at this first, the agony of the cross. Jesus suffered on the cross, and I know that is not news to us, but let's think about it. Let's talk about it for a few minutes. The cross was an instrument of of torture and and shame. Um, The history of the cross goes back long before Jesus. Did you know this? Um, Crucifixion was invented, as best we can tell, by Darius the Mede 550 years before Christ. Uh, The Medo-Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire, and history says that Darius crucified 3,000 Babylonians. And at that time, the victims were usually tied, um, feet dangling to a tree or a post. Uh, From there, Alexander the Great, who invaded Persia um, as he built his empire, this is 330 years before Christ, brought the practice to the eastern Mediterranean countries, uh, during which, reportedly, 2,000 citizens of Tyre were crucified. The Romans, however, um, weren't aware of the practice until they encountered it while fighting Carthage during the Punic Wars 200 years before Christ. And so for the next 500 years, the Romans 
perfected crucifixion. However, uh, given that crucifixion was seen as an extremely shameful way to die, the Romans tended not to crucify its own citizens. Unless you were a, a deserter of the army, uh, a, a terrible political uh, prisoner, they might crucify you. They would not crucify women. I mean, basically, uh, they crucified slaves, uh, disgraced soldiers, as I said, fo- and foreigners, Okay. 100 years before Christ, um, Alexander Janus moved crucifixion into the experience of the Jews when he crucified 800 Pharisees. And by the time Jesus was born, uh, which is about 4 BC, according to modern dating, uh, the Roman general Varius crucified 2,000 Jews, and there was mass crucifixions during the first century AD, which is during the life of of Jesus and during the time of the early church. And that has been reported by the Roman Jewish historian Josephus. All four of the gospel writers, as I believe you are aware, they they write, each of them write about the crucifixion of Christ. But when it comes to the actual event itself, I don't know if you picked up on this as as I read it um, a moment ago, there's not much there by way of description. We see the scourging described, uh, right? The, the trial in great description, what was spoken and the prayers that were prayed in the garden uh, and, and what he taught in the upper room. Uh, we find uh, what happens thereafter. But when it comes to the actual crucifixion, it's just a couple words. Then they crucified him. That was a, that's about all you find in all of the Gospels, but I think it deserves a little bit closer of a look, because in Rome, people condemned to crucifixion were most often, by the time they made it to crucifixion, they were barely alive at that point, having been scourged, and we read a little bit about that. John, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus being scourged, and during, during scourging, a person was stripped naked. They were tied to a post, and then they were flogged across the back with with a cat of nine tails. I mean, it was designed to basically wrap around the body as they were beaten, and and, and there there are pieces of sharp stone and glass and so forth, and it was intended to rip the flesh from the body with every blow and recoil. And so they were beaten across the back, across the buttocks, across the legs by the Roman soldiers. And this excessive whipping, uh, oftentimes, it could cause death. There were some who actually died in the process of scourging. But nonetheless, it would uh, uh, inflict deep wounding, severe pain, and bleeding. Um, Oftentimes, the victims fainted during this. Um, The cruelty didn't stop with the flogging. Oftentimes, uh, Roman soldiers would hurt the victim further. They were known to cut off body parts, such as a tongue. They were known to blind the person, gouging their eyes out or burning their eyes. All of this happened during that process long before they actually made it to being crucified. Uh, as we read, I don't think we actually got to the, did we get to the part, did we read the part where the, his beard was ripped out? I don't know that I actually included that in, in what we just read here, but, but I believe we're aware of that. They, they ripped his beard out. Jesus, they, they put a crown of thorns on his head, and then they beat that 
crown of thorns into his head. And I think perhaps many of us are aware that the thorns in the Middle East, these were inch, inch and a half long thorns. And so you can imagine the trauma that would have incurred um, on his scalp. I mean, it got to the point where by the time Jesus was scourged, it was hard to recognize him as a man. He was so badly beaten up. So you can imagine by the time they would take the crossbeam and have the, the one who's to be executed, the victim, they would, they would then lay that crossbeam across the back of that person. Their back has just been beat up and flogged and, and ripped to shreds. And now it was up to the victim to carry their crossbeam to the place of their execution. And it was very public. It was through the streets, and it was made to create just massive, uh, not only shame on them, but to, to scare the people that would see this, you know, to, to, to recognize the brutality of, of you know, uh, being a political prisoner or being someone who was against, uh, the, who had broken the law, right? And so it was meant to be very public and very, very shameful. One thing is clear, first century executions were not like modern ones. They didn't look, you know, for just a, a quick, painless Death, it was meant to be agonizing. It was meant to be torturous. It was meant to be completely humiliating. And so there they, they would lead the victim then through the streets. Jesus, as you know, I didn't put that part in there, but Jesus, he needed someone to actually carry. They, they, the soldiers picked out someone from the crowd. They had them carry this man, Simon, carry the crossbeam to the place of his crucifixion. And what ha- would happen there? Um, the the patabulum is what it was called. The crossbeam would be laid on the ground. And it, let's see, go to the next slide, guys. Um, the crossbeam would be laid on the ground, and the victim would then be laid on it. Uh, the executioner then would feel for the soft spot uh, between the bones near the wrist, and they would place a seven-inch, three-eighths diameter nail uh, on the soft spot of the wrist and then strike that nail quickly with a heavy hammer. And that first blow oftentimes would go straight through and, and hit the, the wood. And then with every blow, that seven-inch nail was driven through the bone uh, up against that, the median nerve, which runs right through that area, and uh, radiated, the pain radiated throughout the body as those nails were driven into, the, that, into that first wrist, and then they would do it to the other wrist. And so now both hands would be fastened to the crossbeam. Standing, next slide, standing on the site would be these upright posts called stipes, and they are about seven feet high. And in the center of the stipes, often there was a, a crude seat called a sedulum uh, that served as a support. And so the crossbeam was then lifted onto the stipes. The feet were then nailed to the stipes. And to do that, what they would have to do is uh, bend the legs at the knees and actually laterally rotate uh, the legs um, in order to be able to uh, fix them to the cross. It's a very uncomfortable, unnatural position. And then over the top, there would be an inscription, oftentimes that would describe the victim's crime. 
uh, when the cross was erected upright, it created a tremendous amount of strain on the wrists and the arms and the shoulders. Oftentimes, it would result in the dislocation of the shoulder and the elbow joints. The arms being held up and, and outward held the rib cage in this uh, position that made it extremely difficult to exhale and almost impossible to take a full breath. And so the victim would only be able to take very shallow breaths. And so as time passed, the muscles, uh, simply because they're being starved of, of oxygen, starved of, of blood, and being stuck in a fixed position, the, the muscles would undergo severe cramping and uh, spasmodic contractions. It wasn't uncommon for victims to suffer this torture for days, for days under the hot sun. Sometimes it took a week to die on a cross. It was one of the most terrible, painful ways to die. It was designed to be just that. Uh, Frederick Ferrier, uh, in his book, The Life of Christ, describes crucifixion this way. A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly. Dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, Mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but stopping just short of the point which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position, he writes, made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds, inflamed by exposure, gradually gangrened, especially when a victim, when it took a victim several days to die. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged uh, blood. And while each variety of misery, he writes, went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. All of these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself, the unknown enemy, at whose approach man usually shudders, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. And so the cross was an instrument of, of death. It was an instrument of torture. But it was an instrument of death and torture, understand this, for criminals. For criminals. The worst criminals. But Jesus was not a criminal. And that leads me to my next point, the atrocity of the cross. Jesus suffered this agony, this torture, this torment on that cross, but he was innocent. He suffered as a criminal innocently. He did not deserve this. Jesus did not deserve death. Jesus was sinless. Repeatedly, the Bible tells us this, that Jesus was without sin. Hebrews 4.15, for we don't have a high priest, that's speaking of Jesus, you look at the context, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. 
Jesus was tempted. He experienced the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You can read about it, Matthew 4, the temptation of Christ, and yet he was without sin. Peter wrote this. He said he did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And yet Jesus died as a criminal. The Jewish leaders accused him of a lot of sins, terrible sins, blasphemy, it's probably the worst charge, at least in, in their religion. And that truth is especially impressive. The fact that he was innocent when we consider the statements of people who were primarily responsible for Jesus' death. Judas, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 4. The one who betrayed Jesus, he later said, that he had betrayed innocent blood. In John chapter 18, Pilate, who was the Roman governor, who was responsible for the trial of Jesus, three times Pilate said that he had found no fault in Jesus. In Matthew 27, Pilate's wife sent him a, a message saying, Jesus is righteous, have nothing to do with this guy. I've had a vision. In Matthew 27, 24, Pilate washes his hands, saying that Jesus is innocent. In Luke chapter 23, Pilate sends Jesus to King Herod for a hearing, and, and Herod finds nothing wrong in Jesus. He says, I found no ground to charge this man with any of those things you accuse him of. Luke chapter 23, one of the thieves crucified with Jesus, as we read, acknowledged his own guilt but sad that Jesus had done nothing wrong. And then in Luke chapter 23, this, the, we didn't read this part. This was after the fact, uh, after Jesus said it is finished. The centurion in charge of the crucifixion declared that Jesus was a righteous man. And so while enemies of the cross have, have often accused Jesus of being a criminal or being evil, some revolutionary, and he got what he deserved, the people at his trial... The people who were there, the people who had no reason to be prejudiced one way or the other, repeatedly acknowledged that Jesus Christ was innocent. And so, what we have to understand is that was necessary. It was absolutely necessary that Jesus was innocent, that he was sinless when he went to the cross. You see, we are the ones who deserved what Jesus took on that cross. We are the guilty ones. He, the innocent. And yet Jesus willingly went to the cross. This didn't just happen. This wasn't like uh, something that Jesus just kind of fell into. The Bible tells us that this was the Father's plan all along. If you read in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, it says, he humbled himself and he became obedient even to the death of the cross. You see, before Jesus ever stepped down from his glory in heaven, you understand that when Jesus arrived in Bethlehem as a baby in a manger, he wasn't just showing up for the first time, right? John chapter 1, he's the creator. He, he's the one in whom all life flows. When he came into this world, at Bethlehem, he was coming into this world knowing full well why he was coming into this world. 
He stepped out of his glory. He took upon him flesh so that he could come into this world and suffer what we just read, knowing full well what he would suffer. I don't know about you, but I'm not really a fan of suffering. I can tell you this, that I'd rather take a bullet than have that done to me. Are you with me? Give me a firing squad, the electric chair, a needle. Give me something other than that. I don't don't want to go out that way. If I knew that I was going to be crucified, I can tell you something. You wouldn't find me. I'd I'd be in my car. Not even Jim and his crew could find me. I would hide out, buddy. You wouldn't find me anyway. I'm just kidding. I don't know. (laughs) I'm glad they're not crucifying these days. But, But so would you, right? I mean, who, who's going who's to sign up for this? I want you to know something. Jesus knew what he was going to face, and he signed up for it. He willingly, willingly came into this world knowing what he was to face. Well, in a few moments, we'll observe the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a time for us to remember the sacrifice, the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus. And I hope tonight that as we partake of these elements, it's just cracker and juice, and sometimes we can, you know, swallow the cracker and swish down the juice, and sometimes it just is part of what we've done since we were little ones. But you know, this is meant to remind us of what we just described, what Jesus just did, what he did on the cross. What happened? Jesus didn't just die as a victim because he upset the religious rulers of the Jews and Pilate played along. No, Jesus went to the cross and he willingly laid down his life. They didn't take his life. He laid it down. He laid it down. Why? Because on the cross, there were some great things accomplished. I want to just tell you about five of them. There's, I could probably make a list of 20. I didn't think you'd want to listen to that many. So I'm just going to give you five. Five things that were accomplished on the cross. Number one, if you want to write these down, number one, Jesus manifested, yeah, there you go. Jesus manifested the love of God. He, man, he demonstrated, he showed, the different translations have different words, showed, demonstrated, proved, right? That is what Jesus did on the cross. He expressed the love of God as we could never fathom outside of what happened on the cross. It brings depth to the love of God. You see, you can fall into a pit of sin and degradation. You can live like an animal. You can be a murderer. You can be a rapist. You can be a swindler. You can be a God-hater. But listen, you can't get beyond the love of God. Can't do it. I don't care what you've done. God loves you. The cross covers to the very gate of hell. The cross shows us not only how deep a man can go into sin, the the cross shows us how high God can go in love. 
1 John 3.16, this is how we know that, this is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. You see, this kind of love is not the kind of love that's based on what is seen in the other person, right? This is how love often works, right? That romantic, you remember the little butterflies, remember that you, you had in high school or I don't know, some of you started early in kindergarten, you know, and you, you saw that cute girl there, that really handsome kid, and he was like two inches taller than you, you know, with his Nikes on, and those little, you had all these, these feelings, and you know, you're, you're, oh, we've been in love. How many of you are high school sweethearts? Anybody? No, no high school sweethearts? Oh, yeah, okay. I thought there was some, you guys? You guys were high school sweet. Well, what, are you afraid to admit it? All right, we're going to have counseling for you guys after this. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Right, but you, you know what I'm saying. What, I mean, love is, we just, we have a hard time wrapping our head around what, what we're talking about when we're talking about love. Right? We're not talking about some romantic stuff. God isn't romantically drawn to us. He, he didn't look down from him and say, oh, these human beings, they are just the most precious things. Oh, look at them. They're so cute. Oh, diapers. You know, mamas, when you held that baby and that baby could do no wrong. This is not how God looked down upon humanity. We tend to love people that we have things in common with. And when we don't have things in common with some people, it, Maybe they kind of grate against us. They irritate us a little bit, right? So uh, is that, that's, not the kind of, that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about the love of God. Sometimes we love people because we admire something about them, right? Every other kind of love is, is natural. But the love that we're talking about, God's love, it's not natural love. This is supernatural love. This is unmerited love. This is undeserved love. Love that doesn't, it's not caused by anything in us. It's not, it's not because we're, we're so good looking or so attractive. It's, it's none of that. It is this kind of love. God's love that, that brought Jesus to the cross, that caused him to undergo all of that shame. Think of the insult of the cross. Think of the physical side of the cross. Think of the spiritual side of what happened. Jesus, in some way, abandoned, temporarily lost his lifelong fellowship with the Father. What was it that led Jesus to do all of this? It was sheer love, the love of God. And so on the cross, God was loving the unlovable, loving the unattractive, loving, listen, the rebellious. Romans 5.8 says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. Listen, listen, while we were still sinners. You see it? He didn't say clean yourself up, you know. Make yourself really, you know, make yourself great and, you know, then I'll, then I'll die for you. Then I'll accept you. No, it's not, it, there was nothing in us other than sin when Christ died for us. John three sixteen, arguably the, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. I have three boys. I wouldn't give up one of my boys for 
a criminal take their place. I, I wouldn't do that. Would you? I mean, anybody? No takers? It's not, this. no, I'm not giving up my kids for take the place of a criminal. You do the crime, you do the time, baby, right? I mean, it's like, not my, I'm not going to give you God gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I believe that God generally loves every single person. Like, not in a general sense. Not like he sends the water and food and, you know, he, he sends the... I'm not talking about in a general sense. I'm, I believe that God loves every person. The term is salvifically. You know what that means? It means that God loves every person in such a way that he wants every person to be saved. Like he, in a genuine kind of a way, he wants everyone to be forgiven. He wants everyone to receive what was, what was done on the cross. It's not just, you know, we live in America and sometimes we can think, hey, we're the best people on the planet. You know, God really loves us better than everybody else. And we, as Christians, we know that not to be true, Right? doesn't matter where you're from. God loves people in Africa. He loves people in Asia. He loves, you name the continent. You name the country. He loves people in Mexico. He loves people in Canada, right? We could, we could probably put the United States last and say, oh yeah, and he, he loves us too. Thank God. Thank God. He does. But it includes you, whoever you are, whatever you are. What am I doing? Am I, am I yelling too much? Are you guys? Are you guys? Y'all back there? All right. Ugh. All right. Okay. It is finished. Yes. We're done. All right. I won't touch it. I'll keep my hands like this. I'll stand still. What I want you to know is that the love of God includes you. It includes your loved one. It includes the person that you can't stand. The person in the office that really grates you the wrong way. And if they called in and said, I'm never coming back to work, you would be like, hallelujah. He loves that person. He loves them too. We can thank God for that. You see, on the cross, through his death, Jesus demonstrated God's love. You, you're loved. Whether you, what, sometimes we don't feel very loved, and all you have to do is look back to a cross and see Jesus, the creator God, on that cross, dying for you. And you can be reminded that there's someone who loved me enough to go through that for me. And that brings me to the second accomplishment secondly through his death on the cross jesus paid humanity's sin debt this is this is good news he paid the sin debt this is why it was necessary for jesus to be sinless god required a spotless sacrifice for sin without any blemish all of the old testament sacrifices were all pointing to the lamb of god who would come and offer himself up as the ultimate, final, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Why? Because sin is a legal debt to God. You know, as tough as it is 
to hear from a doctor hard news, you know, related to an illness or a disease, something that we might have. It's usually a relief compared to the symptoms we have, right? It's, sometimes it can be a relief like, okay, I, that's not the news I wanted, but at least I know why I've been so sick or why I've been suffering like I have been suffering. We all want to know what's wrong with us. It's harder not to know what's wrong with us. It's even more difficult to not know what the cure is. And in generally speaking, my problem, humanity's biggest problem, is sin. I know that it's, this is difficult for us to admit, but it's the problem. The world thinks that education is the answer, you know. All we need is an evolution of more in a more enlightened state, you know, then, you know, this is going to really help humanity. All we need is love. All we need to be nice to each other. You can remember the famous question that Rodney King asked in the early 90s when the city of Los Angeles was rioting, right? His very famous videotape beating, remember that, by local police, and remember his question. Anybody remember? Can't we just all get along? Here's the answer. No. We can't get along. I'm not talking about racially. I'm not saying that we as Christians shouldn't get along with it. We're to love our neighbor. We're to love our, we are to love every human being, right, in the way we have been loved. I'm not saying, no, we can't. I'm just saying that, generally speaking, as humanity, no, we can't. We have a problem, and it's called sin, and we think that we know something about sin. We see it on the news. We, we see it in the mirror, in our own hearts. But in reality, we know nothing of the awfulness uh, of, of sin, the depths of sin, until we go to the cross. And we see the one dying there who was completely innocent, God, who came down, became a man, right? We see the cross. We see Jesus on that cross, and we know that this is God's one and only son, not dying for his sin, dying for ours. You see, the cross is the supreme expression of our sin. Sin reached a climax right here. It was all of our sin laid on him. But the good news is that sin has an antidote. Sin has a cure. The cross the cross is the cure. You see, on the cross, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful verse that is. Such great theology in that verse. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. You'll never understand your Bible. You'll never understand the depth of Christ on the cross until you understand how holy God is, how righteous God is, how pure God is, that he can't even look upon evil. Yet our sin plucked God's son out of the Father's bosom and brought him down to this world to die on a cruel cross. So this cross reveals the depth of human sin. It reveals how grievous our sin is to God 
that he would give up his one and only son to suffer and to bleed. We miss something of the significance of the cross when we forget that blood was involved. When we drink the juice, it reminds us. It doesn't turn into actual blood. It remi- it's, it's just juice, and it just reminds us of the blood that Jesus shed. Blood has always been the center at a sacrifice. It's always been the central element of the sacrifice. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. What do we find? We find God killing an animal to clothe them. Well, what happened? What had to happen for that to happen, for them to have a coat? An innocent animal had to bleed had to give its life, the innocent for the guilty, that was a picture of what Jesus would do a few thousand years later on the cross. One commentator put it this way, sin and blood have always been tied together in the mind of God. My sin has to have a payment. Either I pay for it with my own blood or someone else has to pay for me, a bull or a lamb or a dove over and over, but the final perfect lamb came, the sacrifice lamb. You see, no one, not you, not me, no one gets to walk away from sin without someone bleeding. Life is in the blood, and somehow my sin made Jesus bleed. We all had a part in his bleeding. We all had a part in his death. Our sins put him on the cross. There's a story that was told of a Viking village that was suffering under a kleptomaniac. Things kept disappearing for, for months, and, and finally, after about nine months, uh, the, the kleptomaniac uh, was, was caught. The, the, the punishment for this crime under their law was 39 lashes in the public square. Well, the thief who was caught and confessed was the, son, the, the king's own nine-year-old son. And honestly, while the, the, the thief had been caught, nobody was happy. There was no joy in the village because they all knew, that the punish, they all knew what the punishment of the crime was, and they knew that it would probably kill this small boy. The king couldn't change it. He couldn't make an exception for his own son or he could no longer be king. The law had to be carried out. And so the day arrived, the entire village came to witness what would happen and they took the prince to the center of the square. They stripped off his shirt and they tied him to a long pole and then dead silence. As the whip was thrown back in preparation for the first of the 39 stripes and just as the child was about to be struck, the king shouted, Hold! While everyone gasped, it was then that the king walked down from his viewing platform over to his son, and he took off his crown, and then he stripped off his coat, and then he took off his shirt. And then this giant of a man, this huge kingly body, he wrapped his arms around his son, covering his son, and then he ordered for the scourging to begin. Church, that is exactly what Jesus 
did for us. We deserved it. He took our punishment. The concussion, the laceration, the penetration, the perforation, the incision, all of those wounds that Jesus incurred in the scourging and, and on the cross, probably the greatest agony of it all was the separation from his Father. As the shadow came between him and God from noon to three, as there was darkness across the face of the earth, God turned his back on his only Son as he bore our sins in his body. You see, church, listen, the, the cross isn't a good luck charm. The cross is not a piece of art. I'm not knocking that. I'm, I'm not knocking it. I'm not saying that don't put one on your car or wear one. I'm, I'm not saying that. All I'm just saying is that we should be mindful of what the cross is. Because what the cross reminds me of is my sin. That's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of how Jesus had to bleed for me. It reminds me of the inapproachable, inapproachable righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the purity of God, and that my sin needed judgment. And the cross is where my sin and your sin was nailed, and that is a relief, isn't it? I mean, that's a relief to know. It's good, it's good to know that my sins were nailed there on that tree. If we can finally come to admit that, when we come to the point where we can admit our sin and admit our need of Jesus to take our sins in his body on the cross, see, we can't take the easy way out. We can't say that Jesus died for all the sins of the world. Well, he did. And I believe that in a literal sense. I believe, I believe in unlimited atonement. I believe he died for, for all people and that his atonement is available to everyone. Everyone can receive the gift of eternal life, that his payment on the cross paid it all, but that it is up to us. We have the responsibility to simply respond in faith, that through the work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel, that the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing us to Christ, that the work of the Holy Spirit draws us to come to him and that, that what he did on the cross was enough to save us. Yes, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, but we have to be able to say, Jesus died for my sins on that cross. My sins. It's personal. And that my only hope is through the cross of Jesus. I need forgiveness. Salvation was purchased. My salvation was purchased through his blood and only his blood. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. You know, the cross just, it has this leveling effect. It puts us all on the same plane. We are all in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you're the president or you are the lowest of all citizens or you live in a third world country with dirt floors in a cardboard house or you're homeless or whatever. It, the cross levels the playing field. We are all sinners in need of what Jesus did on the cross. So Jesus on the cross, he manifested the love of God. He shows us what love is, and he shows us his love for us. He paid sin's debt, and I'm kind of going long-winded here tonight, but number three, well, I'll speed it up here. Jesus disarmed the enemy. 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I think my next sermon series is going to be on spiritual warfare. So we'll dive into this um, a little bit more. But, but on the cross, Jesus disarmed the enemy. This is what the scripture says. If you go all the way back again to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where this is right after the fall, and, and God tells uh, Adam and Eve, he says, he promises Eve that, that one would come from her seed who would uh, uh, strike, crush the serpent's head. Right? The serpent was Satan in, in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Jesus, uh, God was promising the Messiah. He was promising one who would come that would crush the serpent's head. And if I could add something there, it would be the word ship, headship. Right? That's what happened on the cross. Jesus destroyed, he disarmed Satan and his crew. You can imagine, um, I've never had a gun pointed at me, and I hope it never happens. But if someone was, if someone, has anybody ever, I won't, well, some of you maybe, who's had a gun pointed at you, okay? If someone's pointed a gun at you, right, does anybody have a gun in here? Can I illustrate, can I borrow your gun for a minute? I'll wave it around. <laughs> Kidding, right? Um, but, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but when, when someone's pointing a gun at you, what are, they, what are they trying to have? Control, right? My grandfather, my grandfather was, was a World War II vet. And he was, he was coming down to see us at, in Tennessee when we were in college there uh, one time, and my, when my brother was there in college. And, and he stopped at this hotel, and he's getting luggage out of the backseat of their car, and someone sticks a gun in his back. Give me your wallet. <sighs> Probably the wrong guy to say that to. And so somehow, <laughs> my, my grandfather, he, somehow he got the gun. He somehow, somehow he turned around, got the gun, and actually tried to shoot the guy. He, he, thankfully, he missed. But when, someone, when, when that gun was stuck in his back, that man wanted control, right? He was trying to control the situation. The gun means, I have power, I have authority, give me your money right? Well, here's what happened on the cross. Colossians, I think I have the verse there. Yeah, bring that, bring up that next slide. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it tells us that on the cross, he erased the certificate of debt. Okay, that went with our last point, with it, with all its obligations. That was against us, opposed to us, and has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and that's that's a really neat analogy, nail it to the cross. They would actually do that with a debt in that day. They would take that debt when it was uh, the written record, and they would, po they would nail it to a post as a record of the debt's been public notice. They, this is before the internets, you know. But they would, they would public notice the debt has been paid, and that's the picture there. Look, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, triumphing over them. So here's the picture. You got that guy with a gun at you. See, here's what the devil does. He, he, he's powerful. And he, he comes at us like this. Hey, here's your temptation, man. Hey, you do what I say. Hey, I'm powerful. I'm the boss. You listen to me right here. Give me your money. Give me your time. Give me your testimony. Give me your marriage. You know, I'm going to just destroy your life. But what we need to know is that he's got no guns in his bullets in his gun. He's, been dis he's got the gun. He waves it around, but there's no bullets. Now, so if, you knew, if I were up here waving a, bullet, if, a gun around, 
if you didn't know if it had bullets in it, you'd be all ducking, right? But if you knew it wasn't loaded, it's a different story. And that's what we have to realize, is that Satan has been disarmed, that Jesus has defeated the devil, right? And that Jesus sits in the heavenlies at the right hand of God. And Ephesians tells us that we're sitting with him. And so Jesus is above the authority. We are in Christ, so we have his authority, but the devil still waves his gun around, and, and, and we get scared, and we fall, and we, we, we play along. We give him control, right? And yet he doesn't have the control that he says he has. Jesus has disarmed. And that's good news for us, isn't it? Because we live in a world, man, there is a spiritual battle that is happening all around us. And, and we'll dive into that. We'll talk more about that. But, but on the cross, Jesus disarmed him. That means to put off, to strip, and to plunder. And he triumphed. Satan is a vanquished foe. Moving on here. Number four, Jesus opened access to the Father. Here's another one I wish we could just camp on for a while. But think about it. Think about it. Because on the cross, the Bible tells us that while Jesus was on the cross... One, one account says just before he dies. The other one says just after. I think it's probably just after. The way the, the perspectives of the story as they tell it can make it a little difficult uh, to reason that out. But, but the, the, the curtain in the, in the temple was split in two. The separation between man and, and God in the Holy of Holies, it was open. We have access now. And this is what Hebrews tells us. Bring up that next verse there. This is Hebrews chapter 4. Since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Church, listen. We have access to the very throne room of God. The very throne room of God. How many of you have a loved one that's in heaven? You know somebody in heaven. Okay, do you ever want to have a conversation with someone who's dying? You know they're going to heaven. Hey, when you get to heaven, can you, can you talk to Jesus about this for me? Can you talk to God about this? Like, I got this thing going on. I'm not sure it's getting through. Well, you know the reality of it is? Is that you and I here on earth right now have the same contact with God, the same ability to talk to God as your loved one in heaven? It's not like they have any better access. We have access to the very throne of God. What, what is your trouble tonight? What is your worry tonight? What is your anxiety tonight? What is the issue that you're dealing with tonight? Have you prayed about it? Have you taken it to the almighty God who created everything? Have you talked to him about it? Have you talked? I mean, Jesus is there. He's at the right hand of the Father. He died for you. He loves you. He's your mediator. You can talk to God access. Jesus accomplished that on the cross. And finally, he provided an example for us to follow. Uh, Peter wrote this. He said, for you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps, that you, we should imitate Christ, how he suffered. He did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. 
How did Jesus suffer on the cross? He was being mocked. He did not return the insults. He willingly laid down his life. He didn't threaten. He didn't commit any sin. Do you find sometimes that it's easiest when we're suffering to sin? Somehow we, we think, ah, God must have forgot about me anyway. What's the point? Sometimes when we're, when we, when we're hurting, sometimes we excuse sin in our life. But you know what? Jesus left us an example that when we're suffering unjustly, when we are being mistreated by people that we love and care for, he left us an example on the cross of how we should respond, how we should deal with it. Jesus accomplished all that on the cross and more. What do we do? Next steps. I'll give you these and we'll be done. Number one, I think, I think we should love them, right? Shouldn't we love them? The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, right? Love him. We love so many things. Let's love Jesus. Look, I, I know that's, is that a struggle for us? That's a struggle for us, isn't it? We, get our, we set our affections on so many different things and maybe tonight, we just want to bow our heads and say, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you. Help me to love you with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my strength. It's easy for us to grow cold. It happened in the first century in, among Christians. It's easy for us to do that. Maybe, maybe there's a coldness in our heart. Maybe there's been for a while, and maybe tonight just looking at the cross Maybe something has been rekindled, but let's love him. Secondly, secondly, let's trust him. Trust him. Romans says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Trust him. Put your faith in him. If you haven't put your faith and your trust in him to save you, um, he paid the sin debt. You just need to look to the cross Come to the cross humbly and receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life that he provided. Love him, trust him, and then follow him. Look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. You see it? He died for all so that those who live, that's if you're saved, if you're born again, if you have his life in you, he died so that those who live should not live to themselves. Hey, I got this life. Let me go out and do what I want with it. No, it's but for the one who died for them and was raised. We'll look at that next Saturday as we consider the resurrection of Jesus. But let's love him. Let's trust him. Let's follow him. Amen.